For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a cross-cultural program that's inspiring Native students at the UA College of Medicine. How Tucson is honoring and celebrating Juneteenth this Saturday. And a choice can either be apples and oranges or chalk and cheese. What UA research into metaphor reveals about how our brains process creative language. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This year's graduating class of medical students at the University of Arizona had the highest number of Native American students in the college's history. The College of Medicine attributes that to recruitment efforts, but as Emma Gibson reports, Native communities have a very real need for more Indigenous doctors. Sylvester Moses is one of eight Indigenous medical students who graduated this year. He says his choice to become a doctor and work on his tribal reservation won't just affect him. I do want to work for my tribe, St. Carl's Apache tribe. The thing about that is that we don't have any more St. Carl's Apache doctors working on our reservation. <clears throat> we need some Apache doctors working on our reservation. Not only provide health care for our, our people, but to also inspire the youth to be able to go into healthcare professions. For the next three years, he'll stay in Tucson at Banner University Medical Center as a resident in internal medicine. After that, he may specialize in gastroenterology. Eight new indigenous doctors may sound like a small number, but it shows the strides the College of Medicine has taken to increase diversity. In 2016, it reported zero indigenous students. Carlos Gonzalez is an associate professor of family and community medicine and the informal mentor to these students. Research studies that uh, patients just feel more comfortable talking with somebody that comes from their same cohort. He says greater diversity among doctors improves health care for the diverse population of patients they serve. They'll open up more easily. There's trust that's built and communication styles are similar. It's just for better health care. We come from a very diverse state. And to have students from the various Indian reservations is extremely valuable. The med students claim tribal nations from all over the West. Pueblo of Jemez, Pascuayaki, Navajo, Salt River Pima, Maricopa, Laguna Pueblo, Kiowa, San Carlos Apache, and Cherokee. Gonzalez credits the university's pre-medical admissions pathway program for the spike in diversity. That's a one-year program that students with bachelor's degrees can take to prepare them for medical school. He says the program aims to attract students from reservations near the border and rural and inner city communities to the U of A med program. These areas traditionally have poor high schools. The student may have aspirations to go into med school, but it's difficult for them because they don't have the preparatory courses in high school to compete in college. Gonzalez says these barriers keep the numbers of indigenous doctors low across the country. During the 2017-2018 academic year, 
less than 1% of the enrolled medical students in the U.S. identified as only American Indian or Alaska Native, according to the Association of American Medical Colleges. That same year, 20,000 students graduated from medical schools across the country. 20 of them were Indigenous. During this past academic year, the U of A enrolled the fourth highest number of American Indian medical students nationwide, and the numbers are increasing for next school year. Our current number of American Indian students is the largest of any population in any university in the U.S. Gonzalez says there are now almost 30 American Indian students enrolled in the College of Medicine. He says the more minority students are enrolled in the school, the more minority students will apply to the program and hopefully practice in Arizona. We're meeting the needs of our populations in Arizona. We have, percentage-wise, one of the fewest number of docs per 100,000 population. And then when you go into rural Arizona, that drops down dramatically. At the U of A, future doctors get the chance to experience rural medicine during clinical rotations and remember why they wanted to be doctors in the first place. These rotations are at clinics on reservations across Arizona. Gonzalez says if more indigenous doctors who grew up in these communities work on reservations, it could increase the comfort levels for indigenous patients. The patients often feel like this is somebody from the community who knows me, who knows what's common here, and I can talk to them easier, and more likely I can trust them. When you're a non-Native physician and working in a reservation, you can get the trust, but it takes years. Next year, six Native American students are on track to graduate from the U of A College of Medicine. It's a long way to go before all Arizona reservations have mostly Indigenous doctors, but Gonzalez says he's proud the U of A College of Medicine is prioritizing diversity. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Emma Gibson. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln on January 1, 1863. But it wasn't until June 19, 1865, that slaves in Galveston, Texas, were set free. That became the date that most African Americans acknowledge as the end of slavery. This year marks the 154th National Recognition of Juneteenth, which is being celebrated on Saturday the 15th here in Tucson with an all-day multicultural event at the Convention Center. Joining me now are organizers Valerie Stanley and Andre Newman and historian Dr. Michael Angs to tell us more. Valerie begins. Juneteenth started 49 years ago um, on A Mountain with the families that came from Texas and Louisiana. Um, it started as a small picnic. It went to Kennedy Park for several years, and then from there it went to the Donald Ligon Center, and then from there went to the Dunbar Historical Auditorium. And then we outgrew that, so we went now this year, starting at the Tucson Convention Center. We're really excited about that. I grew up in Texas, in Fort Worth, and so I was aware of Juneteenth because it was always celebrated there. But it didn't seem like an event that was cross-cultural. How would you contrast that with Tucson's Juneteenth celebration? 
since I've attended the Juneteenth Festival, which has probably been 25 years, I've always noticed that it's been a diverse group. It's advertised that it's open for the entire Tucson community. So people from Tucson want to know about Black history, want to know about Juneteenth, and so they come out. So Dr. Michael Engs, let me ask you, one of the reasons why the date is important is because that is when news got to Galveston, Texas, of the Emancipation Proclamation and some of what were considered the last slaves in America were able to take their freedom. Um, Is there a story about how word of the proclamation came to Arizona? Well, I, I think we have to remember that Arizona at the time was not necessarily a slave culture. Uh, our culture at the time was really a, a more of a free culture. So the whole idea of freeing numbers of slaves in Arizona was not a big deal because it wasn't a slave state at the time, though it was intended to be if the Confederacy had won the Civil War. Arizona was really a part of the Spanish culture up until uh, that time. If you read the scholar Henry Louis Gates Jr. from Harvard, for example, what he's trying to tell us is that Juneteenth in Texas was a celebration of the end of slavery. But here in Arizona, it was really a demarcation point, a changeover from the Spanish culture that African-based people had really established here in the Southwest versus the slave culture that was coming to us from the southern United States. So I don't think it was as big a deal here because, remember, many of the black people here at that particular time had come up from Mexico. Uh, And Mexico had freed their slaves as early as the uh, Mexican independence in 1821. So they were way ahead. And much of the influence that we have here is from the early years prior to the Civil War when Arizona was really a part of New Spain, the Spanish Empire, and Mexico. What do you think are the primary reasons why Juneteenth needs to be observed today? Well, I think for the reasons I stated and because of the research of uh, Dr. Gates, we see ourselves as a culture that is primarily based in an Eastern ethos, where a slave culture grew up with the 13 colonies, it continued on, a civil war was fought over it. But in fact, African-Americans or African-based people started coming to this area as early as 1539 with Esteban and with the Spanish. And in fact, the Spanish had been freeing their slaves to the military service ever since the conquest of 1519. So a whole different pattern of African-American culture was being growing up here in Arizona prior to Juneteenth and the freeing of slaves. And we don't talk a lot about that because it wasn't in the best interest of people coming from the South, the old Confederacy, to talk about a group of free black people who had been here for almost 300 years and give them the sense that their culture was diverse uh, rather than a slave culture that was based in the slave culture of, of the old South and the Confederacy who had now lost the Civil War. And they established many rules after Juneteenth to enforce that. Uh, One of the laws that was being passed early on, right after Juneteenth in 1869, was a law that talked about indolence and vagrancy. So though you were on a piece of property somewhere in the South or in Texas, you couldn't leave because as soon as you left, if you didn't have a job, you could be arrested and put into a work gang, which was, in a sense, a return to slavery. 
So I think a lot of the way we talk about our history, especially African-American history, is based on an assumption that all African-American history is based in the 13 colonies, a move west because of manifest destiny, rather than a companion movement from the south of Mexico, starting with the conquest of Mexico in 1519, that included the Moors and people of African descent. And they were, in fact, because of Esteban, were the first people to come to what we now call Arizona. I'm going to go out on a limb, Andre, and I'm going to say that I think you're the youngest person in the room right now. That's true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Share for us how you think your generation relates to Juneteenth, and is this as important or is it as significant as it was to other generations? I think that history is important to to help any group have any sort of sense of relevance, especially place-based relevance. A lot of what gives me pride is knowing that even though it's not history that's highlighted, it's not history that I found in my high school textbook, uh, knowing that there is a, a tradition of African-based people in the Southwest um, makes me more curious. It makes me excited to tell these stories. So Juneteenth is, you know, for a lot of reasons, it's an opportunity for us to, to come together, um, not just black folk, but all sorts of folk come together to learn more about history, to uh, uh, celebrate togetherness, and uh, try to create some hope for the future. Valerie, what are some of the messages that you hear back from the community uh, after each year's celebration? What are some of the things that stick with you in terms of making this an important mission? Probably the most important is people saying they finally learned about Juneteenth. They had heard about it, but didn't know what it was about. And so their curiosity brought them to the festival, and they learned something. They were educated and know a little bit more about black history. And what are some of the features? What are some of the cultural aspects that are represented? Well, this year we're going to have a young man from Detroit with a mobile museum, uh, 101 History. And he's going to have artifacts from slavery to hip-hop. So he will be there doing a one-hour presentation and displaying his artifacts. Um, We have... Barbia Williams, who does her African dance. Um, We have vendors who display all kinds of African artifacts and African um, uh, items that they can purchase as far as um, jewelry and bags and clothing. Should people show up hungry? People should show up hungry because we will have lots of vendors who are serving soul food (laughs) and um, different types of food as well, but soul food will be the number one. As well as organic refreshments acai, smoothies, (laughs) ice cream, healthy desserts. So nobody has to save up a cheat meal to come, right? There's there's going to be other opportunities. Well, it'll it'll be a choose-your-own-adventure. Terrific. From a historical and educational standpoint, Dr. Ings, what are some of the highlights of the Juneteenth gatherings for you? Well, I think when I first got here in 1973, it was the first time that I realized that there was an indigenous black community here in Tucson, because there was, there's always been less than 4%. And despite the fact I was working at Pima Community College at the time, I didn't see a lot of African Americans here. And so when I went to the first Juneteenth in 1973, what I began to realize is we have an indigenous community, it's very diverse, uh, but the history has not been promulgated as much so as I had expected. Because we're not only talking about history of Juneteenth and the Civil War and black service in the Civil War, we're talking about the Buffalo Soldiers who were here. The famous artist Frederick Remington did sketches of them here in Tucson. We fought in the punitive expedition against Pancho Villa in 1917. This uh, last couple years was the 100th anniversary of Charles Young, the third black graduate of West Point. 
um, going into Mexico to chase Pancho Villa. So I think Juneteenth was my inspiration to, to look deeper at the just real diverse and deep history of African-American culture here in the Southwest. And each year that I go, I meet somebody who gives me a new story that I haven't even heard of. And so that continues to inspire me, and I think it continues to inspire other people who attend because we get to share something that we're all extremely interested in and extremely um, fascinated with, which is a culture that we haven't heard a lot about. My guests were Valerie Stanley, Dr. Michael Angs, and Andre Newman. Each plays a part in this Saturday's Tucson Juneteenth Festival from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. at the Tucson Convention Center. Everyone is invited. The human brain is tasked with processing many different kinds of information. One of the most deceptively simple tasks is decoding metaphor. When we say that life can be a journey, or that we're feeling blue, or that someone is fishing for a compliment, we're using colorful language to convey our real meaning. But for a child, or someone whose first language is not English, these common phrases could potentially be mystifying. Vicki Lai is an assistant professor in the UA Department of Psychology Cognitive Science Program, and for more than a decade, she's been studying how metaphors are decoded by the brain and the reason that we tend to use them so often. The first and foremost question for metaphor researchers is essentially the same questions that everybody asks. Are metaphorical languages different from literal language? That's kind of the question that drove metaphor research in the past 20, 30 years. Also, that's the question that drove my research in the past 10 years. Right now, I'm trying to look at how metaphor can benefit users. We speak metaphors once every 20 words. Why? Why do we use metaphors so frequently? Does it help? Does it help us remember things more? Does it help us to be more emotionally engaged? And to your knowledge, are metaphors universal throughout the languages of the world? Yes, indeed. You can find metaphors in all languages. They are a little different, but they are relatively universal. So when you first began to look at brain scans, either through, is it fMRI that you use? I primarily use EEG, which is brainwave measure. And I also use fMRI, which is an imaging method. So um, the first, the EEG, is more like a line on a graph. That's right. Okay, and then the imaging is a picture of the brain. We've all seen those colored images yeah. where different active parts of the brain might light up in red. Yes. So when you first began to look at these scans of brains of people while they were using language and interpreting metaphor, what was the first impression you had? What jumped out at you from that way of looking at things? The timing. I went for the EEG method first because of the timing, because I always wanted to understand the processing difference between metaphoric language and literal language. Explain to us what a test subject would experience coming into your lab. I would love to be a part of something like this. So when I walk in the door, what's going to be my experience as a participant? 
Well, we'll first ask you to sign an informed consent. <laughs> then That's standard, we, yeah. Yes, and then we will put a cap full of sixty-four electrodes on your head, and、um, fitted them with electric gel to make sure that everything is、uh, conductive correctly. And then we will show you sentences on the computer screen. And can you think of an example of some of the sentences that a test subject would read? Life can be sometimes bumpy. I would read that sentence, and you would see what happening in the picture of my brain activity. The brainwave measure is continuous, so、um, we will have a continuous measure, and we'll basically we time lock the brainwave to the word bumpy because that's the part when the utterance turns metaphoric. So we see how that's different、uh, compared to the row can sometimes be bumpy. That is to say, when you see bumpy, you have basically B U M P Y exactly the same visual output, physical output. The word form is exactly the same. What's different is the psychological variable. Is it metaphoric or not metaphoric, based on the context? That's where the analysis is. What is a surprising result from these experiments that has changed the way you think about this process? Before I started my、uh, very first study on metaphor, I thought that they would be the same for conventionalized metaphors. For instance, life can sometimes be bumpy. I didn't expect to see a differential brainwave because I would think that that's a conventional metaphor. Yeah. And I thought that we would only see that difference in the novel metaphor condition, but hey. We saw a difference. It's surprising to me that、uh, something that familiar in our daily language can show this kind of differential brain signatures. In layman's terms, we sometimes refer to people being right-brained or left-brained, based on whether they're more of a language and art person or more of a math and science person. But does left and right brain behavior seem to be reflected in your research? So this relates to the second most asked question in the metaphor research: whether metaphor engages the right hemisphere more due to its creativity. A lot of people said yes, and also a lot of people said no. But my research showed that、uh, it's a matter of how you view laterality. If you say that if there is any activations for metaphoric language in the right hemisphere, then the short answer is yes. But at the same time, some other studies also reported that difficult language, difficult literal language, also engages the right hemisphere more. In that sense, it could be that metaphoric language is a bit more difficult than literal language, which is why the brain wants to recruit the help of the right hemisphere to help process、uh, this different form of language. But essentially, both metaphoric and literal language engage the left hemisphere core language area more. That certainly stands to reason, but it also makes me think of the fact that there must be. Something about metaphor that is appealing to us on some level; otherwise, we wouldn't use it as much as we do in art.、Um, certainly, there are professors who are teaching calculus who can find creative ways to express themselves and to teach the the subject. There might be other calculus 
professors who do not do that, right? Yes. So, so there has to be a, a, a socially beneficial element or, or a communicatively beneficial element to using metaphor. Do you agree with that? Or I completely agree okay. with that. In fact, we're actually currently collaborating with a structural geology professor. His name is George Davis, and he has a textbook that uses visual metaphor to talk about structural geology. We're going to look at whether learners learn better with these visual metaphor figures than uh, those that use traditional abstract uh, figures. As someone who loves language and likes to use colorful language and enjoys hearing new metaphors, um, I can think of the fact that I have a very emotional response to some metaphor. And an example that always comes to mind for me is a phrase that is more common in the UK than it is in the United States. They sometimes use the phrase, it's like chalk and cheese, meaning two things are completely different from one another and should not be compared. I almost have a physical gag response to chalk and cheese. What might you be able to tell me about why I have such a visceral response to a metaphor like that? That metaphors are emotionally more engaging than literal language. This has been shown in a number of studies. Uh, in one fMRI study, they showed that metaphors activate uh, the amygdala more than literal language in the brain. Another lab that is working on measuring the skin conductance response to metaphoric language as opposed to literal language. That study will explain your reactions to that phrase, physiological responses on the skin. Uh -huh. And they also measure uh, this pupil dilation in, when they listen to metaphoric sentences as compared to literal sentences. And the predictions there are that your pupils will get bigger when you listen to metaphoric sentences, indicating that you have more of an emotional response for metaphoric sentences. And you mentioned the amygdala. Remind us, what is the amygdala usually responsible for in brain activity? Something that is emotional, arousing, unpleasant, unpleasant. Tell me, Vicki, has your research changed the way that you use language or receive language? I definitely think twice or three times when I speak, <laughs> metaphorically or literally. For more conversation with Professor Vicki Lai, look for the latest episode of Arizona Science at azpm.org. Host Leslie Tolbert explores the neuroscience aspect of how our brains interpret metaphor. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM radio studio. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.